From WAMU 88.5, this is Metropocalypse. I'm Martin DeCaro. Coming up, Riding Trains with Congress Part 2. We ride the Silver Line with Virginia Republican Barbara Comstock and Politico's Lauren Gardner. Plus, do Metro workers get paid too much? The board agreed to the wages that we have. Contentious labor issues are bubbling to the surface. But first, what the heck is going on? A derailment at East Falls Church and the story of a train operator who must have been really hungry. Strap yourself in. Metropocalypse episode 10 starts now. The DC Metro uh, historically has been a great strength of this region. Customers should expect extended delays and crowded conditions on trains and platforms. I cannot go to my taxpayers and say, you need to pay more for this system that isn't working. When Paul Wiedefeld took over the nation's second busiest subway system, Metro was in a state of multiple crises. A string of safety lapses, federal investigations uncovering a broken safety culture, declining ridership, enormous unfunded infrastructure needs, and financial woes as expenses continue to outstrip revenues. And it becomes more difficult for Metro to extricate itself from this sorry state of affairs each time you hear a headline like this one, Train Derailment. It happened at East Falls Church before Friday morning rush hour picked up, and that wasn't even the most eye-opening story of the week. More on that in a moment. So, the derailment. An outbound Silver Line train partially derailed as it approached the platform at East Falls Church. It was moving at an unspecified slow speed as it crossed the interlocking outside the safe track work zone. The interlocking is where trains cross from one track to the other. Now, it was Metro's sixth mainline derailment in as many years. One passenger suffered a minor injury. He was asleep and bumped his head when the train went off the tracks. Sixty more were evacuated. Metro, Federal Transit Administration, and NTSB, National Transportation Safety Board, all on the scene investigating and repairing for the better part of three days. So what caused this? Well, Metro has released a preliminary cause in their ongoing investigation of what caused the derailment, and it's a track condition known as wide gauge. The two rails slide too far apart, so the train's wheel slide off. And in this case, Metro says the wide gauge was caused by deteriorating railroad ties. In other words, old stuff that needed to be replaced. At the scene of the derailment, here was Paul Wiedefeld. Like everyone else, you know, we're frustrated. We want this thing fixed as quick as we can. But, um, you know, I can't, you know, this was something was outside of the work zone that we were doing. And it, it, it does reinforce that we have to continue this constant effort to maintain the system and get back up to the, to the level we all were. The GM also pointed out that he would continue to investigate whether all the protocols were followed when the passengers were evacuated. Why is that? Because after a red signal overrun on the red line July 5th, two passengers and a Metro employee were taken off the train in between Wheaton and Glenmont stations while the third rail was still energized. And that brings us back to that incident. Metro revealed more details about why the operator ran a red signal, nearly running over two track workers and risking a head-on collision with another train. Here is Chief Safety Officer Patrick Lavin. This individual was rushing because he was concerned about getting his brake two stations away where he was going to be relieved. You heard him right. The operator had been in an argument with his supervisors, and in his zeal to get to his brake, he totally lost awareness blew through a red signal among a laundry list of other rules violations, at least according to Metro. For instance, he also forgot to turn up his radio, so it took those two track workers shouting him down to get him to stop his train. 
So how could this possibly happen? Well, technically speaking, Metro's trains are on manual operation, so an operator is able to push through a red signal up to 12 miles an hour. From a personnel point of view, there's a disagreement here. Metro management vaguely blamed union work rules for allowing this employee to transfer from being a bus driver to a train operator despite a checkered safety history. He had three safety violations as a bus driver, two unspecified rail violations in his one year on the job there before the July 5th incident. But the Amalgamated Transit Union, which represents rail operators, says that his transfer had to be approved by Metro Human Resources, so blame them. Metro management versus organized labor is a theme you'll be hearing about more and more in the weeks ahead, as the Amalgamated Transit Union Local 689, which represents 8,500 employees, negotiates a new contract with the Transit Authority. We're going to hear from the head of the union later in this episode, but first we ride the rails with Congresswoman Barbara Comstock. Virginia Republican, next. DCS Daily. DCS Daily. DCS Daily. It's news, culture, and curiosities. From the district, Tacoma Park, Alexandria, Friendship Heights, Hyattsville, Falls Church, Northeast Washington, D.C., in your inbox every weekday afternoon. DCS Daily. Sign up at dcs.com slash newsletter. dcs.com slash newsletter. We're beginning our trip from Wheelie Reston East on the Silver Line as Metro's track work continues here through the end of July. And I'm with Lauren Gardner of Politico. Lauren, welcome back to Metro Apocalypse. It's great to be here, Martin. Yes, we just ran to make this train and we're joined by a special guest. Excuse me, who are you? Congresswoman Barbara Comstock in the 10th District in Virginia. Congresswoman Comstock, well, thank you for joining us on the podcast. Sorry we were running a little bit late. Republican of Virginia, uh, last week or two weeks ago, we spoke to Democrat and one of your colleagues in the regional delegation, Don Byer, so we're happy to have somebody from the other side of the aisle. So how do you feel Safe Track has been going? Well, it's something that we know that was absolutely essential because the safety culture was just non-existent, you know, essentially in, in Metro. And, and the new general manager, Paul Wiedefeld, made this changing that safety culture and creating a strong safety culture a top priority. The one thing we really need to have a lot more of too is transparency and transparency about how it's working and hearing from people. So I really encourage your listeners to both let us know how it's working. I follow blogs like Unsec, you know, the Twitter, like Unsec Unsec Metro, (laughs) and uh, is Metro on fire? These are very serious matters. You know, it's not funny that there's a Twitter handle like that. And right now you have the negotiations on labor going on. And we know right now that we already pay far more than the average transit system for our metro system. About 75 to 80% of the metro cost is labor. Of their daily operating costs, yes. Yes, and we have 42 track workers per mile, and the industry average is 19. And those track workers are paid about $20 an hour over Davis-Bacon wages. We've got a lot of issues here that Paul Wiedefeld himself has noted 
we're paying more and we're getting less and that's got to be reversed. All right, so you did raise a few issues here. Let's go back to the issue of transparency first. Uh, Metro's been releasing progress reports about the surges. They hired Laura Mason, who used to work at Bechtel to be the Safe Track project director. Are you satisfied so far with what they're saying and doing? Well, I think they've started. I noticed like one of the issues that we raised at the hearing a little while back was the reporting the crime incidents immediately. And I noticed in looking through Metro's, I think it was the Twitter feed I was looking at, um, had two recent crime incidents where they immediately put up pictures of persons of interest and put it out there to the public, which is exactly the kind of thing we asked for. So the public is alerted to where crime has gone on, how they might help. Because we know riders take pictures of incidents, whether it's a fire or it's a crime or it's somebody. Yeah, Twitter's who's... usually the first place to check when something's exactly. happening. Exactly, and so I'm really pleased to see that Metro is now incorporating that in. It's a step in the right direction. I'm really happy they're doing it, but we have a lot more to do. How often do you take the Silver Line? Have you, and especially during Safe Track, has, is this the first time you've been on during this surge? Yeah, or? I've, I've not uh, been, I, I, I don't, I'm not able to take Metro because I, you know, my husband goes to work really early in the morning. We don't have parking in McLean where I live for the Metro, so you have to get a ride to Metro to be able to take it. And I have to be someplace at a certain time. I can look at ways and know, okay, if I get up at this time, I'll be at work on time. So that's, and that's the problem that a lot of people yeah, face that's not how public in my region. But to work. I will say one good thing that we are seeing more of as a response is we're seeing more teleworking, people utilizing different hours. So if you don't have to be at work at a specific time, you can adjust your work hours. So we asked Congressman Beyer whether he supports the federal government upping its share of Metro's operating budget. Actually, that's not even the right way to phrase that question. Upping would mean that there's something now. There's no money in Metro's operating budget from the federal government. He said yes, but he's realistic that that may not happen anytime soon. Do you support the federal government subsidizing Metro's day-to-day -day expenses? Well, what we've talked about, and actually I'm pleased that Paul Wiedefeld has said he is not asking for more money right now. He came to my district. He's not. Jack Evans in is. Loudoun. Yeah, well, but the general manager has said, I'm not asking for more money right now. He said that at a Loudoun Chamber of Commerce event where we both appeared to discuss Metro. And he said the reason it's, he's not is because he's looking at the whole operational cost What's going on? He's in the middle of negotiations right now on labor, which I'd like to see a lot more transparency on that. But he wants to look at the whole system, what it costs, what we need to change, what we can outsource. One of the things with the three years of track work being done in one year is he told us at our hearing that that should enable him to be able to go to the outside, private contractors who can come in and do the track work at Davis-Bacon wages. So if you, Davis-Bacon union wages are $20 lower an hour on track work than what we're paying right now. So say you have the existing employees doing the one year's worth of work, you can outsource two years worth of work and be paying $20 an hour less. He's also looking at outsourcing parking, outsourcing the para paratransit. So he's trying to right size Metro, get people out of the back offices that may be not needed anymore, put them on the front lines. He said, we've got to have more um, police in our stations. So he's trying to find what is the right size of Metro? What is it going to cost there? And then after we see the right sizing, the system working, 
then we can look at, so what will that system cost when we get it right? But on principle, once all of that is figured out, do you think the federal government should be kicking in any money on operating costs? Well, we are providing the train costs. I fought for the $150 million when my colleagues on my own side. The capital to, side. The capital side tried to cut the deal. You know, we have a deal that the new, the new trains, which I upset that the new trains have problems because we have made that commitment for 10 years and we are paying for those. And I went to the mat with my local colleagues here to get those trains with the understanding they would be safer, you know, and, and, and better. Uh, trains, so they need to, you know, get up to the standards that we were promised. But then um, we can look at what we're going to need to do. But what I've said is, until we know and have transparency on what we're already paying, I should point out we've got controllers on Metro that have made one of the things that we got information on two hundred and sixteen thousand dollars for one of the controllers. Rail traffic Nine, controller. Ninety-six thousand dollars in overtime some people, if you haven't read, and this is must reading for anyone who's doing any reporting on Metro or riding Metro, the Washingtonian article in December of this past year yes. had two people who went in and were working for Metro who really knew transit systems from other areas, and they saw really just rank incompetence and playing the system to get overtime where they don't hire new people want new people because people want to get you know their, their last years of working they're upping their overtime so they can get added to their pensions so they don't like people so we have bus drivers making over a hundred thousand dollars because of huge overtime costs we're not hiring people that we should be hiring to bring new people into the system and so, we're not firing people you look at the um but the union they just tried to fire somebody that fortunately the general manager is going to the mat to make sure you know when people run a red light I mean, he fired them, and now they're appealing that. You know. So, um, to Lauren's question, it sounds like right now, it's Metro needs to get their act together before you would consider supporting a three hundred million dollar per year. Well, that's the number Jack right. Evans throws out. He's the DC Metro uh, DC Council member, Metro Board Chairman. A three hundred million right, dollar year had, subsidy. And I've had meetings with with Jack by myself and talked extensively about this. And we just recently had a delegation meeting, and I think the sense was, without knowing what we're paying for, the, that discussion really can't even be had. Do you feel you're at odds with your party when it comes to funding mass transit? Well, I'm a co-chair of the Transit Caucus with uh, Bill Lipinski of Illinois, and we're working closely together. We just introduced a bill to have more uh, safe, you know, um, to deal with um, emergencies, with, you know, with 9-11 you know, type situations and make sure we're doing everything we can in the transit systems. and. We also are make, trying to make sure that technology is coming into our transit systems and so we're using the best technology. Sort of the way we use ways for driving in cars that we're doing that in transit also. So I think there's a lot of good opportunities. Let's keep chatting on the platform sure. for a minute. Yeah. All right, so we're here, but let's let's continue. You were saying you don't feel like you're at odds with a majority in your party when it comes to public transit funding. I mean, look at the, the RNC, the platform, the party platform. Some have said that was somewhat hostile to mass transportation. You know, I haven't seen what they had. What I focus on is my constituents and making sure we have this the metro system back up to being the state-of-the-art system that uh, we had when it first started and that we were promised and that the taxpayers deserve. 
So, and so that's why I'm so concerned about these cost overruns and the waste and the, um, you know, the way the, the labor contracts are, are, are not uh, suitable in, you know, sort of in a 21st century system. Barbara Comstock, Republican member of Congress representing the 10th Congressional District in Loudoun in Fairfax counties. Thank you, Congresswoman, for braving a scorching morning commute with us. So Lauren Gardner and I now stuck on the platform at McLean trying to figure out how to get back to our zip car out at Wheelie Rest and East. And we found ourselves in the midst of a true metropocalypse. No trains in sight, no predictions on the overhead signs, so we shot the breeze. So Lauren Gardner of Politico, I get the idea that Congresswoman Comstock is not a fan of the Amalgamated Transit Union. No, she does not seem to be. Uh, she's very concerned about the uh, level of overtime wages that some of these workers are making, considering uh, there are still a lot of problems with the metro rail system. And she was not happy that it took her three months to get some of that information from metro. So you asked her a question about you know, where is the money going to come from? Metro revenues are increasing a little bit, but not nearly as fast as their expenses. And she answered about you know, cutting costs again, but the bottom line is Metro is asking for money from Congress, from its jurisdictions. You're on the Hill all the time. Her views are not unusual when it comes to giving money to Metro. Um, we've talked about this before. It seems like a long shot at this point. Oh, definitely. Um, I mean, when it comes to any kind of funding agreement for the rest of the fiscal year, it's going to be you know, something that's going to happen in the, over the fall and winter, it's probably not going to be a new level of funding. Uh, anyone who wants to see more money for Metro is probably going to be, prob probably is already looking towards next year. To clarify for our listeners, the federal government does provide Metro money for its capital budget, which is infrastructure projects. It's the issue of paying the day-to-day -day expenses, the operating budget, which totals about $1.8 billion a year. Right now it's D.C., Virginia, and Maryland each pay a subsidy, but the federal government does not. And that's the case for the entire country. The federal government doesn't subsidize the operating costs of any transit system. But if the regional delegation isn't on board, how would they even convince lawmakers from Wyoming or Utah that don't have massive public transit systems that they should be giving Metro money? That's right. I, th I think that's probably what the local uh, delegation is looking for is a cohesive argument for, okay, some people say this is how much operating money we should be giving to Metro, others say we shouldn't be giving this much because of all the problems that have been going on with safety, with service, with reliability. Uh, they're going to need a cohesive argument to take to their colleagues in other parts of the country to, to make the case for this. They've already done that on the on the capital funding. Uh, Metro gets $150 million per year, uh, at least through, I believe, fiscal 2018 from Congress. But uh, other than that, it's going to take uh, a little more a little more wrangling and negotiating uh, to get any more money. So Lauren Gardner, thank you again for hopping the train with me out here. Uh, it's nice and quiet, and that's because the Silver Line's only running about every 18 minutes here at McLean Station. I guess you're heading into the city. I am. It's, it's very peaceful out here. We're in the shade. We got on a train that had air conditioning. We're not broiling yet. It doesn't smell like any kind of burning equipment. Or body odor, let's be honest. Yeah. That is an issue. Yeah. I've got to go back out to the Wheelie Rest in East and fetch the zip car that we took to get out here and uh, we'll spare everyone our road adventures, misadventures. So we'll talk to you soon. Sounds good. Right. Thanks, Martin.
When we continue, we'll talk to the president of the Amalgamated Transit Union, who has a much different take on what ails WMATA than the member of Congress we just traveled with. Next. We continue on the Metropocalypse podcast. So to quickly sum up what Virginia Republican Congresswoman Barbara Comstock said about the problems ailing Metro, well, it's the union's fault, largely. She said employees are making too much money, abusing overtime. She says the system could save a lot of money during the Metro maintenance surges if it used private contractors that paid lower wages. So you might imagine the union has something to say about that. Jackie Jeter is the president of the Amalgamated Transit Union, Local 689, the largest union at Metro, 8,500 employees. And when I spoke to her recently, I started by asking about stories about Metro employees who earn more than $200,000. We earn the wages that is negotiated, and, and we're not first in the country. I think we happen to be probably fifth or sixth. WMATA workers has taken a progression over the years in their earnings, you know, in order to get them. I think there's a six-year progression before you get to top pay. They talk about top, what the top pay is, but what they fail to also say is those individuals um, make less money because they take a progressive wage over a six- or seven-year period of time. So um, it is not as if they come in the door making that amount of money. Um, so I'd say tell the whole story. Many union members feel like they're being blamed for all of Metro's problems, particularly the safety issues out on the rails. And that's even as people pay lip service about top-to-bottom responsibility. I asked Jackie Jeter about that. You, you cannot... You cannot lay the blame of Metro's woes at the feet of the workers. You just can't. And it's ridiculous for people to, and I use that word, and I'm, I'm saying it as mildly as I possibly can, because unless you've sat down and you've done a complete study of every problem within WMATA, I think it's um, irresponsible to carve out one part and say, oh, this is the reason. Um, Sure, we're, we're going to push back. The workers that I represent move this city, and they move this city to the best of their ability. And the only thing they ask for is to be properly compensated as well as respected for doing that. You know, all too often we like to talk about, you know, the incidents that occur, the negative incidents that occur, but that's 1%. So what, what else is wrong with the 99% that get up and come to work every day and provide a service to the riding public, and they do it with a smile, and they do it as well as they possibly can? I know that WMATA has had a history of forging an unsafe safety culture, and I believe that it's going to take a while to turn it around. Do I think that it has progressed as quickly as I would like for it to? No, but that's because safety is not being forged from the top to the bottom and the bottom to the top. That's the only thing that's going to create a culture. People will have to know that Jackie Jeter is required to provide the same safety habits as uh, the lowest worker or the GM for that matter. That is what's missing. And then there is this whole climate of retaliatory and um, you know, paranoia and I righteous, think, righteous paranoia. Do you think um, that's continuing? 
I, I think that it takes longer for people to get over it, you know. I think it takes longer for people to feel like they can trust uh, the managers that they work for or the department that they work for. And finally, when we spoke to Congresswoman Barbara Comstock, she brought up an idea that is currency among Metro reformers on the left and right, the idea of privatizing or concessioning the operation of certain parts of the Metro Rail and Metro bus systems. This would not privatize the system itself, but hand over operations to private entities. A couple of weeks back, we spoke with transit advocates Gabe Klein and Chris Leinberger, who are both smart growth advocates, both favor that kind of idea. The most prominent example in Washington is the circulator buses. But when I asked Jackie Jeter about that example, she said it's a cautionary tale. She reminded me of the mishmash of private bus systems that predated the creation of Metro. History always repeats itself. And some people forget how Metro was created to begin with because we had a lot of mom-and-pop bus companies out there. Service was not great. Um, there was no way uh, passengers had to pay if they wanted to go from Virginia to Maryland. They had to pay exorbitant amount of money or the buses did not allow them to traverse to all, of, all parts of the DMV. And so we come up with a world-class system, a system where everybody comes here and says how great it is. Um, you take the federal government workers in and of themselves who ride the system on a regular basis and the federal government workers actually get a stipend to ride the system. So, you know, they forget where we came from. We came, Metro was created out of a lot of different bus companies that kind of did, that was private and their workers weren't that well paid, and the equipment that they were using was not that great. And so now we have a system where we try to, you know, take care of that, and now they want to take us back to, you know, the 1970s. And you would be totally against this idea of concessioning or privatizing? I am totally against it. Private companies have not done anything. Uh, as a matter of fact, you mentioned the circulator. If you look back, over the reason why uh, 1764, who was the local that represents them, went to the, DC, the, the city council, it was because of the equipment that they were using was um, dilapidated and it was worn down and it wasn't being upkept well. And they were saying that they were afraid for their safety in operating the equipment. So private is not always better. Um, and, and, you know, it shows in everything that we do. Uh, we also represent some private companies, and you cannot tell us that the service that is being uh, provided to the most vulnerable, the metro, the, the uh, ADA community that rides the, the um, metro access vehicles, uh, is getting the best service that they can get out of that private company. They're just not. Jackie Jeter, president of the Amalgamated Transit Union, Local 689. And this has been Metropocalypse. Next week, we'll ask what the metro system could learn, borrow or steal, from other city subways. Like, how come Madrid and Budapest have night buses that run after the system shuts down, but we're forced to use cabs or Uber? Does L.A. have better signage? And yes, we'll explore the D.C.-New York comparisons. This episode of Metropocalypse was produced and edited by Brendan Sweeney, Joe Warminski, and Zaid Shorbaji. Andy McDaniel is WAMU's Director of Content. Our theme music is by Poddington Bear. All the other music from today's episode came from WAMU's Capital Soundtrack, which served up tunes by Bunnyman Bridge, Miss Siobhan and Yuma Ray, and the Caribbean. 
You can find artist details by going to wamu.org metro. And if you have the time and inclination, check us out on iTunes or wherever you get this podcast and give us a rating and let us know what you think. I'm Martin DeCaro. See you next time.